Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. If you do have questions about that, just let me know. Happy to talk to you. So today's discussion is on motivating employees. I love this topic, chapter 10. And it's um, one of my favorite talk- topics to talk about when it comes to business management because as a manager, you wear a lot of hats. You got, you've got to be the person driving the ship you know, or making things happen, but you've also got to be a coach, a mentor, a motivator. Um, sometimes you feel like a crisis manager. You know, you're having to be a confidant. People tell you things in confidence. Um, you're having to be an information gatherer and also an information disseminator. So there's a lot of things you have to do, but one of those things is be a cheerleader, somebody that motivates employees and inspires employees to want to do good work. And it seems you might think, well, I don't really have the energy or, or, or will to do that. I don't want to motivate people. But one of the ways you can motivate people uh, indirectly is by treating them well because people respond really well to being treated well. If you treat people with respect, and honesty and integrity and um, give them autonomy where they feel like they have some freedom and they're not being micromanaged, people tend to respond really well to that and they want to do a good job because they want to keep that job. And so motivating comes in many forms. So these are the learning outcomes for the chapter. Explain Taylor's theory of scientific management. Describe Hawthorne's studies and their significance to management. Identify the level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and apply them to employee motivation. Distinguish between the motivators uh, and hygiene factors identified by Hertzberg and differentiate among theories uh, X, Y, and Z. So, and there's dozens of motivation theories. We'll talk about some of the big ones as we jump into this chapter. Oh, a little bit more. Explain the key principles of goal setting, expectancy, reinforcement, and equity theory. Show how managers put motivation theories into action through such strategies as job enrichment, open communication, and job recognition and show how managers personalize motivation strategies to appeal to employees across the globe and across generations. All right, so workers' job satisfaction. Happy workers can lead to happy customers, which leads to successful businesses. Unhappy workers are likely to leave, which is costly. Uh, Engagement, employees, level of motivation, passion, and commitment. Disengagement is the employees act out of their unhappiness at work and undermines the efforts of their coworkers. Um, the employee experiences the level of satisfaction at every step along an employee's path at the company. And so as a manager, you absolutely have to care about the experience your team is having. Um, when I was, a t- I still teach, I enjoy teaching, but my primary job is um, department chair, which is uh, making sure that the other faculty members down this hallway and in this in this department are having a good experience and have the things they need because if they are having a good experience and have the things they need and they're happy, that leads to more students being happy, you know. And so uh, we want our faculty, we want our staff and faculty to have a good experience here so they'll be motivated and happy to do good work. Um, and you, I don't like, you've probably heard so many expressions about this, but you do get more good work out of people by treating them well. Um, if, you're, if you're treating people poorly, it doesn't, like using the Dairy Queen example again, if that manager is talking down to you or making you feel 
bad for the way they're speaking to you, it totally demoralizes you. It doesn't make you want to do good work. But if you if the manager is treating you well and inspiring you and you feel like you're treated fairly and equitably, it makes you want to do better work. You know, it makes you want to show up. Like if I if I mean my wife, she would go to she's had she hadn't had many jobs, but she stayed at Bath and Body for thirteen years. And in her experience there, she had five different managers. The last manager didn't treat her well. She would come home crying, demoralized, not 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 happy. What did she do? She she leaves. So um, her one of her jobs she got to next, there were some personnel problems. She wasn't happy there. The next job she got to after that, it got even worse. The office manager treated her very poorly, talked down to her, demoralized her, uh, and just really negative work environment. She come home crying again, so she leaves again. And the next job after that, um, she ends up at a temporary uh, temp agency. They put her as an administrator, uh, like a basically answering phones and stuff at a steel production plant. She really liked it, but it was a temporary assignment. So the next job after that was at a medical clinic, and they liked her so much that they kept her, you know. And I'm glad. And it's funny, and this is one of those cringy dad things I did. I had to go to the doctor last Monday, and I was in there, and I'm, I'm you know, real quick visiting in and out. And uh, after I left, the office manager was there. Um, and he was walking around. They were they were looking for something, but I ran into him and I re- I knew who he was, and I spoke to him and I said, you know, I introduced myself. Hey, how you doing, sir? Uh, my name's Ryan Bradshaw. I'm Karen's husband, and this is totally cringy. You know, my kids would be mortified. My wife was like laughing when I told her, and I th- I apologize for the cringiness, but I did this. I said, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you being a good manager, because you treat people well, and I appreciate that. And he, you know, what he said to me, he said, I appreciate the feedback. Because managers don't always hear, you know, if it's working or not. But just treating somebody with respect and dignity in this world, that's a big thing, you know, because managers can treat you terribly. And I've worked for a spectrum of managers where I was treated very poorly and treated very well in respect. And and the managers that I had that treated me well, I still love those guys. I want to go back and hang out with them and talk to them. We're still friends. And so things that you can do to increase that employee experience is just treat them with dignity, treat them with respect, be honest, open, transparent, um, and let them know that you care about them wanting to have a good experience where they work. And so we've already talked about these two things in brief, intrinsic rewards and extrinsic. Intrinsic in, inside. The personal satisfaction you feel when you perform well and complete goals. Pride in your performance, the sense of achievement, whereas extrinsic rewards or something given to you by someone else as recognition of good work, pay raises, praise, promotion, rewards, awards, things like that. Um, which one do you think motivates people more? What do you think? Uh, pay raises, because we just got our raises in October. Like, in October and I, like, I was more motivated to stay in work. Harder. Sure. And also bonuses from the summer. That, that is like, okay, I'm going to stay for this bonus now after the summer. Sure. I want to get rewarded for that hard work over the summer, but like the most busy time. Yep. I'm going to ask the same question again. What do you think motivates people more, intrinsic or extrinsic? You're not, you're not wrong. I just want to get other people's opinions. The answer is it depends on the individual, but which one um, of these – do people get more satisfaction from? Intrinsic. Yeah. Intrinsic, you get more satisfaction from. I think in, in my 
my opinion is like it depends on the dog because like Dairy Queen, I can make a good ice cream cone, but it's going to be eaten later. And right. They're going to take the ice cream cone as long as it's edible. Sure. And I've had to, like my coworkers make me feel right. great at work. Like, sure. A lot of my new managers are great people. I'm like really good friends with them. Yeah. And they don't like they they're just friends. They, they make you feel like you're just one of the team, and they're a sure. part of the team, not yeah. just disappearing all the time. Yeah. And so, like, that makes you feel good, but it's like, at a point, I'm just working at Dairy Queen, and it's not really a job I feel satisfied doing. Right, right, I get that. And a large chunk of people feel like you feel. I'm just doing this, I'm, I'm going through the motions. And their motivation level is very mid-grade. You know, they're not highly motivated, they're not lowly motivated, they're just kind of, they're kind of there, you know. Absolutely. Well, point being, like, there's certain jobs I wouldn't want to do regardless of salary. Like, I mean, like, um, if you offered me $100,000 today to go back and work for Walmart 50 hours a week, no. Not even for $100,000. I'm not going to do it. I mean, because quality of life goes down, happiness goes down, stress level goes up. No, not going to do it. I would even say $150,000. I wouldn't take it. 200000 No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going back, so... But, I mean, you have to look at, I mean, when you're young, like, when I, was, when I was 18, 19, 20, I thought about the money, you know, and that's the big metric you look at. I want to make a lot of money. The older you get, you look at quality of life. Do you, do you agree with that? It's not always about the money. Like, and um, some people, though, are, are highly motivated, motivated by that extrinsic reward, the money, and that's fine. I mean, I, example, I worked in the car business for years, and I still, I know people that still work in the car business, which is a 50, 60 hour work week. You're working six days a week and a lot of long hours where you're just sitting there, not a whole lot going on. Very draining for me, but some people, and they're making six figures a year, that's fine. You know, they're, they're happy to do it to make that money. Um, so, but going back to this intrinsic reward, I showed you that book Drive by Seth Godin earlier this semester, and he really opened my eyes to how magical it is if you can find work that fulfills you, you know, and where you could create something or do something that you connect with and you have a sense of pride in doing it. I, for a while, I worked as a carpenter. I installed hardwood floors, and I did it for several months. I did it about six months, and the first couple months I did it, I, I just, you know, didn't really connect with the act of, of what I was doing. Um, but as I, you know, I was just taking these big bundles of boards, lay them out, so, you know, get them slotted in and start nailing them down, but after a while, you start to look at the finished product and you realize, man, this is really awesome. You know, we really made something beautiful. You know, we see this finished product of how nice it is. And a lot of artisans that make things, you know, uh, they feel the same way. You know, if you're a brick mason, you, you, make, you make this thing and it looks awesome. Or if you're a painter, sculptor, artist, whatever it is. Uh, but you don't have to necessarily be to do that to get that same intrinsic reward. There's so many activities to do it, like sports. Um, even video games. If I, you play video games, you have, you get this intrinsic motivation, uh, that sense of achievement from that. So <coughs> the real magic is you want to find work in your life that gives you this intrinsic reward. If you go to a job and your sole reason for being there is extrinsic because of money, it really is not fulfilling. You end up feeling like you lose, you have this sense where you just don't feel gratified. When I was at Walmart, 
I felt like I was just in a perpetual grind and there was no rewards. There was no, there was no really any reward. I got a paycheck, but I didn't feel gratified by what I did. And so um, I highly encourage you to find work that gratifies you and that you feel that intrinsic reward. So one important type of motivator is intrinsic or inner rewards, which include the personal satisfaction you feel for a job well done. People who respond to such inner promptings often enjoy their work and share their enthusiasm with others. Are you more strongly motivated by your own desire to do well or by extrinsic rewards like pay and recognition? And this is a spectrum. It's not a, there's no perfect answer. You know, you might, like I said, I, and it does change over time. When I was uh, young, I thought about, I want to make six figures, you know, have a big, big house, fancy car. And I realized, I told my, my daughter and I had a conversation this week and I said, uh, and this, I actually stole this quote from a guy. Have you ever, ever watched that show Alone? where they're out in the woods by themselves. You know what I'm talking about, though? So I was watching an episode of this recently, and I've seen the same episode before, but this guy was out in the woods, and it's, it's kind of funny watching these shows because they talk themselves out of leaving, into leaving. Toward the, they're, they're out there for two or three months, and they're sitting there by the fire, and they're, like, all alone, and you can just see the psychology playing out. You know, they're talking about food, talking about being home, and they're just talking themselves into quitting. And this guy said something that's really profound. He said, you know, I don't want to quit because this million dollars would be very helpful. But the fact of it is, is that everything that you want in life, you already have. And he had this epiphany that everything I want in life, I've got a house, I've got food, I've got my child, I've, I've got everything I need. And uh, that was a really profound moment. And you see it, and he quits soon after. But uh, if you could reach that point in life where you realize um, it's not what the world presents to you on, on MTV, you know. I know you guys don't watch MTV. But uh, all that stuff is a pseudo-reality. The reality of you existing and having just enough to live, that, that, that is sufficient, you know. In fact, I went to a dinner Thursday night. We were at a gathering of, of academics. And um, I, I won an award about a year ago. And this was an awards dinner. But um, I was in there and... Dr. Smith, he was uh, the former VPAA at Wayne. He's now the president of Brunswick Community. He got up to give a little speech, and he went to Africa with his, his prize money he won. And he said, you know, I went to Africa, and I went to study animals because he's a biologist. He said, but when I got there and saw how these people lived, and he said he had an epiphany because these people live in huts made out of manure and sticks, and they walk around in, on bare feet, and... It's a complete contrast to the way we live in America. He said, but they're all happy. And he said, they, they don't have the, the problems that we, we have in our lives. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the, 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 that's just an interesting contrast that they've already figured out that they have what they need and they're, they're happy with that. It's enough. And so intrinsic is where the magic is. And so Frederick Taylor, the father of scientific management, um, and scientific management is the study of workers to find the most efficient way of doing things and teaching people those techniques. Three key elements to increase productivity is time, methods of work, and rules of work. <clears throat> they actually did time studies where they observed bricklayers. And in the time studies, what would happen is they would see a pile of bricks over here, and the bricklayer would go pick up a brick from the pile. They'd come back over here and get the putty, putty and lay the brick, and then come back over here and grab another brick and keep, and keep doing that. And what they realized was those three or four steps that bricklayer took to get to the pile of bricks and then back, there's a lot of time 
wasted in between that and that wasted motion. So they developed a feeder system to feed bricks to the bricklayer that could just give them a brick and they could just kind of walk down the line and save that time. And so modern manufacturing, modern process engineering, we talked about this last chapter, they are constantly looking at waste as a, or, or wasted motion and, and time to try to improve those metrics. <laughs> there, um, one example is being late to work five minutes, not a big deal, right? Most people would say it's not a big deal. But if, you're, if your uh, employer has 300 employees and they're all five minutes late, that's 1,500 minutes of lost productivity just in everybody being late five minutes, you know. And so that's a, that's a lot of money. That's, I mean, if, if you're paying everybody a salary, so 1,500 minutes, what does that break down into hours? Six, uh, 60 minutes, how many times will that go into 15? Who's good at math? I guess I'm good at math if I use my calculator. I can't do math in the afternoon. That's a character flaw of mine. So 1,500 minutes divided by 60 minutes. So that's 25 hours of lost productivity just in the, uh, well, I'm sorry, 300 employees. Yep. If they're all five, so 1,500 minutes divided by 60. Yep. So 25 hours. Told you I couldn't do math in the afternoon. So 25 hours, and let's say the average employee makes 20 bucks an hour times 20 bucks an hour. So that's $500 in lost productivity every day of the week. So times five days a week, right, times four weeks a month, times 12 months a year, $120,000 in lost productivity about everybody being five minutes late. So that's real money, you know. And so <clears throat> people that are really up on productivity and time management and stuff like that, they, they want to make sure that uh, the rules are followed and they're capturing all that stuff. Um, I talk to some Walmart employees every once in a while, and, like, they won't let you clock in until your shift starts. Like, if you get to the time clock early, you can't clock. They won't, it won't allow you to clock in until your shift starts. So if you're, you're scheduled to be at 4 o'clock and you're there at 3.59, it won't even work until your assigned shift kicks in. So, yeah. Um, questions on any of this so far? Scientific management or mm -hmm. intrinsic or anything like that? So, so time studies, or they study how a job is performed, gather time and my, my motion information, check different methods. Then they codify the best methods into rules. Choose workers whose skills matches the rules and establish a fair level of performance and pay. So scientific management is about breaking down every step in a process, finding how they can make each step more efficient. Time motion studies, studies in which time tasks must be performed to complete a job and the time needed to do each task. Efficiency became the standard for setting goals. Yeah, if I know it's going to take five seconds to do this and 10 seconds to do that and 15 seconds to do that, you know, 30 seconds is the turnaround time to complete that, that process. And so that gives you some good information if that's an accurate number because you know that whatever process you're doing, you can get two done in a minute. And so 60 minutes, you know, 120 outputs of whatever it is you're making. And so that, that type of knowledge or having that understanding of what it takes to make that happen that gives you some realistic expectations of what your output should be and also can give you a metric by which to improve. So if you're doing 120 outputs an hour, you know, the goal might be to go to 130. How can we get that extra 10 in? Um, you know, or it might be to double. You know, how do we take it from 30 seconds an output to 15 seconds? What does it take to make that happen? And so 
if you ever, we, we talked about how it's made before, if you ever watched that show, some of the things they pop out are just, it seems like every second it clicks by a 10 of something fall off the line. It's just amazing to watch this thing, these machines go. And they've got it down to an, an exact engineered science of how long it takes to do these things. Frank and Lillian Gilbreth developed the principle of motion economy, theory that every job can be broken down into a series of elementary motions. The scientific management viewed people largely as machines that needed to be properly programmed. So we have gotten to a stage in our industrial revolution, even though it's been going on for quite a while now, where hum the human factor is for something that we just can't engineer a machine to do. Everything else has been machine engineered at this point. <clears throat> so when you walk into a production line, the machine is doing you know, the vast majority of the motion, but wherever we can't engineer something, that's when the human has to step in to take care of whatever that, that last, the human element, that human engineering. And, but like, there will be a point in time, we've talked about androids and robots and AI, there'll be a point where the humans have outsourced that to, to robots and say, you know, we used to come by and do this check manually because we couldn't engineer it from a machine. But now we got, you know, this robot over here that's going to just make, make sure that's done. And the great thing about that is they can stay on the clock 24-7, 365. Or are we going to allow them to do that from a legal standpoint if a machine, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, are we going to say, you know, you have to work 24-7, 365 if you're... So what? Labor laws for robots. I know it sounds crazy. Yeah, I mean... Right, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, I, yeah, it's just it's just so far beyond the way we think about the world now. I mean, it's wacky. What's up? It's probably a good thing that they're getting like, uh, an AI's rights figured now because that right. can also stop an AI from even taking over as many jobs as they're given because like, the outlook for right now for AI in factories is that round-the-clock work. You don't have to deal with tired people. Sure. But if an AI is given rights that they can't work that long, right. then there's not really a point in an AI. Well, so here's the, here's the, the, the real tough question. for. There's a lot of tough ones, but this is one that I'm, I'm not saying I came up with, but I thought of it, not saying somebody else didn't think of it before. But if humans are, in, are fallible, meaning we can create, we have errors, how can we create an infallible machine? Think about that. If we, are, if we have errors within us, if we're fallible, how can we create a machine that's infallible or perfect or always make the correct choice? And the answer is you can because we are flawed by nature. And if a machine is made in our image, it's going to also be flawed because it's going to have our flaws. What's up? But then they're also going to be given that sense because like, people just believe AI are going to be perfect because why, like, that's how the sense of it, their machines right. and do everything. So then they're going to have that sense of, well, I'm perfect. So when they make a mistake, they're not going to think about that mistake and they're just going to keep pushing it along. So we all have biases within us and stereotypes that we may not, may not even be aware of at a conscious level. <clears throat> and that enters into the programming of a machine. And we may not even realize that we are entering that bias, you know. Um, but on the, the topic that we're talking about and with AI and machines, and I talked about treating your employees with respect earlier and treating them well, if we start out on a note that we're going to not treat an AI well, then they're going to learn from us that that's how you're supposed to treat people. 
and they'll reciprocate that back to us, you know, that, oh, this is how you treat us. Oh, this is how we treat you as well, which is why don't you guys work 24 hours a day? You know, I mean, so uh, if we do get to a sentient machine, which I think we will get to at some point, we should probably start out on a note as we want to treat you with respect because that's what, that's what we do, you know. And so I don't think we should use it as a well, – there should be a Bill of Rights, you know, where we treat them with some type of humanity, dare I say, you know. So uh, other comments on this topic? All right. So this is a great segue into uh, talking about scientific management and motion studies. UPS tells drivers how to get out of their trucks – how fast to walk, how many packages to pick up and deliver per day, and even how to hold their keys. In fact, this is not in the writing, but they engineer their routes to where they have no left turns. You heard this? Yeah. They, they, they just only take right turns so they don't have to go against traffic because that creates delays. So can you see how UPS follows the principles of scientific management by teaching people the one best way to perform each task? And so, yeah, I mean... It's I can per- tell you who doesn't do that. Who's that? Amazon drivers, Amazon drivers don't do it. Yeah. I, I don't know if anybody's noticed. <clears throat> you can tell the difference in like UPS drivers are they're very professional. I know because I used to work there a long, long time ago. Yeah. But, and those are people that have been in the company for right a while and sure. way up. And you know, they get to your house, they, they're very cordial and they do their business and they get on out. I've, I've had good experience with UPS. And then Amazon pulls up and they hang a package out the window and mm-hmm. come get it from them. It's like they hired whoever filled out an application. Yeah, I see. It's tough because, um, you know, I've talked to people recently about not having good leadership in their organization. And part of it is the organization needs that body to fill that role. And you don't always know what you're getting when you hire somebody in to be a leader or, you know, or an employee. Really so, fast and they, Amazon exploded, so they yeah. weren't able to really probably train and have decent leadership. Right. It's, it's, it's such a catch-22 because on the one hand, you need, I'm going to get you, you need people to do these processes, but it's hard to control every aspect of every person you hire. So what you got? Well, uh, I remember this past weekend I was watching Undercover Boss. Okay. And, like a show from like when I was at Will that I used to watch all the time, I just started watching it again. And now like looking at it from the, what I've learned here, it's really cool to watch because like you get, they get this chance to go and look at, at the very basic level of what their company needs. Right. And they can see where their imperfections are, and they can use that scientific management to mm-hmm. fix their company. Like, uh, I think it was the Retro Fitness, he found out right. that she just wasn't doing her job. So, let me give you a great example. An example of that you open a restaurant, nobody comes in, um, but people know about it, but nobody comes in. What is the customer telling you? They're probably telling you your food sucks. But you don't, you don't know that because, in your opinion, your food's good. You know what I'm saying? Like, an example Olive Garden. I, we've talked about Olive Garden. I think Olive Garden's food is terrible. I don't go to Olive Garden anymore. Like, I think it's for what you pay for it, I can make better Italian at the house, you know. But in their mind, they think it's good food, you know what I'm saying? But, like, they've lost me as a customer, and they may find out at some point why they've lost me. I don't know. But um, companies are in organizations, they don't always listen to the customer, and then the customer disappears, and they didn't find out, you know, until it's too late why, why the, they didn't listen to the customer. But in that note you got to listen to your employees. Your employees will tell you, and they don't always come out and directly say this is the problem because they have, they, they're scared you're going to retaliate or you're not open. But I, I actually was involved in hiring somebody recently, and I told this person, uh, I said, I want you to come in and tell me what I'm doing wrong. I said that to him on the phone. 
said, tell me if I make a mistake or do something wrong or something you don't like. I need to know that because that's the only way we improve. You know, I don't want you to keep that from me. And that's the way all managers should operate. Tell me what I'm doing wrong um, and be humble. I mean, you know, these are, we're all human beings. You know, nobody should be, have this, this air about them that they're better than anybody else. I don't have all the answers. What's up? Well, uh, I, so like my original manager that I used to work with all the time, the one who was, uh, just was a toxic environment. Here, sure. She didn't believe she could make a mistake. She believed she'd been at Dairy Queen for so long that she knew exactly how to run it. She knew how to run it better than the owner. Right. And so like it gave us like if, you watched her make a mistake, you couldn't say anything about it. Right. Or she told you to do this, even though it seemed wrong. Sure. You couldn't tell her that just seems wrong. And so like whenever I got like these new managers I'm working with, like they're a little younger and more like 19, 20-ish, but they're like significant because they know they aren't perfect at mm-hmm. their job. Like they understand that they need to work on it and they're at the same level pretty much as us because they've been working with us since we knew that they were before managers. And so like, they like I say, oh, you messed, like, hey, uh, is this done? And they're like, oh, I forgot about it. And they under, they like accept the fact that they didn't know what they needed to be done, like what needed to be done. Right. They accept their mistakes. Rather yeah. Than, like punish you for pointing it out. You know, um, in the end, the people that are abrasive, it eventually catches up to them. Like, I mean, it may take a while, but eventually it's like somebody, some, somebody crosses their path and just lets them know, hey, this isn't a good way to be. And then they end up wondering, why am I, why, why don't people like me? You know, I don't understand why people don't, you know, as a manager, why, why people think I'm terrible. It just goes back to that example with the food. Your food sucks. You know, you're not a good manager. You treat people terribly. Listen to the customer. Listen to your employees. They will tell you, you know, something's not right. If, if you're a manager and nobody likes you, I mean, there's something that you're not doing. You know, you're not, I don't, I mean, when I came here, people didn't know me. They didn't trust me yet, you know, and like, uh, they were maybe a little standoffish to begin with because they just didn't know me. But once they get to know me, you know, they realize I'm not here to, to do them any harm or shake things up. I'm just here to try to help them, you know, and things get better, you know. So be transparent, treat people with respect. Um, so warnings of employee stress. So this is some red flags that you see. Ne- negative attitudes about work. Drops in productivity, chronic lateness, absenteeism, people not showing up to work, careless with details, unable to get quality sleep, withdrawn from coworkers, social withdrawal. So these are these are warning signs that you can see pop up in your organization. And really, it's as, as simple as, how are you? Is there something I can do for you? Like, talk to people. You know, just treat people with respect, ask them questions, try to get to know them. Like, relate to them as an individual. That goes a long way with people. Sometimes people just need somebody to ask them how they're, how they're doing. How's your day? Is there anything I can do to help you? You know, like, or buy them some donuts every once in a while. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. What's up? Like, when I was working under my original manager, I found that I was more likely to work, take off a sick day whenever she was my manager. There you go. Like, yeah. I wasn't feeling the slightest bit, like, good. Like, maybe I was overstressed or dry. I just had a cold. I was like, I'm not going into work. I don't feel like you're sure. doing that way. Right. Or uh, I was less productive. I didn't really talk to my coworkers because I kind of was just like, I just need to get my work done. Yeah, I told my boss, Mr. Brown, Brown Worley, I said, I'm going to be here unless I'm really sick. Like, about once every other year or so, I get where I'm like, wake up with a fever and not feeling great. But other than that, I'm going to be here. And um, I haven't missed a day that wasn't planned yet. Like, I'll, I'll plan a day to go take care of 
like the dentist or something, you know, but I've been here otherwise. And um, that, that tells you a lot about people's commitment that they're going to be here. Um, and my team is really great with uh, being here. Um, and I've had a little bit of absenteeism, but it's just things happen. You know, a kid gets sick or something, you know, but um, I feel like, you know, this team is in great shape, doing, doing good things. But if some of this stuff started to happen where you see these issues popping up, that's when you need to do an assessment and say, okay, what's working, what's not working, how can we, how can we help, you know. So how to help with stress, reach out to coworkers, families, friends for support. Make time for exercise. Choose healthy foods. Focus on positive thinking. Plan regular breaks. Develop a consistent sleep schedule and prioritize tasks. One thing that's on the list, leave work at work and try to leave home at home. Like, when I walk out the door at 5 o'clock, I don't really think about this place. I mean, do you think about this place much at home, really? No, exactly, yeah. I mean... My wife don't have that option because she's a... Yeah. That's a, I, I know, they, they got too much to deal with. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's what grade level? High school. Yeah, it's tough. Um, but I, I do, on a limited basis, do some stuff at home. Like, I take my notes home every week um, on the weekend, and I'll, like, review them on Sunday just to get my mind back in the game a little bit. But um, you need to disengage from work when you're not working so you can keep your sanity. I mean, the idea of checking emails all the way up till 10 o'clock at night, that's not a good practice. I've done it in the past. It's just not healthy. What's up? Oh, well, I feel like for the first couple months, because I, I just hit six months this in, on the 17th. Okay. Yesterday, uh, I, I felt like for the first four months, I would always come home and like complain to my mom like about customers or like a sure. manager interaction, and I just vent to her like they made me angry. And right. I, I need to talk about it. But I found I started I like stopped doing that because I was like it made me feel bad because it's like they they're just customers coming in. Like I still get frustrated with them because right. I, I like to be treated with at least the basic level of respect, and sometimes sure. fast food workers get none of it. It's just that thing, you're a fast food worker, I don't really care, you give me my food. Well, see, I do the opposite. I try to treat all people with respect, but I feel like it's cringy. You know, my kids say, don't talk to them, you know, like, you know, like when I go to the McDonald's drive-thru, I ask them, how's your day going? That kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like the most respect possible to sure. people, but I'm also like, please don't disrespect me instead you don't have to right. be chatty with me but just say hi or like i don't know what your favorite color is you know like i mean yeah. well, I like a, <laughs> when i open the window to take your money i'm just gonna be like hi how's your day sure your total is. yeah just do you, like it's so awkward sometimes if you just open it up here's your total take your money and then be quiet the whole time i try to tell everybody i appreciate them and i mean i appreciate that you were here to help me thank you just be i mean it goes back to that respect thing um what is your favorite color by the way Purple, good choice. Mine is probably, I think it's lifelong has been green. I like green, it just, it's nice looking at green. So, what's your favorite color, Shane? Uh, anybody else wanna offer a favorite color? Turquoise. Turquoise, wow, these are some not primary colors. Anybody, what you got? Army green. Army green, okay. Catherine? I like black. Black, what you think? Blue. blue, what's up, man? Purple. What is it? Purple. purple? Nice. Red. Yeah. I'm a green-blue kind of guy, you know, so all that stuff. Good stuff. All right. So Elton Mayo and the Hawthorne studies. So the Hawthorne effect is the tendency for people to act differently when they know they're being studied. <clears throat> so 
in higher education, there's these things called classroom observations when you have somebody come in and, and watch you teach. But when they come in and watch you teach, you're going to be different than, they, than you would if you're on like a Danny cam, right? Like if, if, if the parents are watching you babysit the kid, hey, Mr. Jones, how you doing? Great. And they walk out and the Danny cam sees you like talking trash to the kid. You know, I mean, you're not going to talk trash with the parent there, right? So the Hawthorne effect is you, if you know you're being observed, you act differently. And this is valid in the scientific community because what you study, you also affect. And so unless you, your, your things that you're studying, whatever it be, people or animals, unless they don't know they're being studied, uh, they're, they're going to act differently, you know, if they, if they know they're being studied. Did you have a comment? Um, I was because Derek, when you can watch people make the ice cream. Sure. Not really, but like they can look across the counter and they can see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know people are staring. It's not that I work like more. It feels like, weird though, right? Yeah. Like, can you look away? <laughs> don't look at me. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm just trying to like scoop the toppings of their sure. ice cream. They're just staring at me. And I, I don't know where to put my. Yeah, and there's some. Like, looking around like. Oh, and there's some customers where you put like 19 M&Ms, they wanted 20. He was like, hey, can you get, do you get that kind of critique? Like. Well, we had, just last night, we put, uh, somebody had given me the ice cream. It was a hot fudge Sunday, and apparently there wasn't enough hot fudge for this person. Okay. And but we we can't add more without charging them, right? Because that's our business model. Toppings are extra. And so when I I went to tell them, they got all mad at me because they're like, "There's not enough hot fudge." It normally pulled around because hot fudge normally slides, but it was like it was new hot fudge, so it didn't really slide off of it. Yeah. It was still kind of cold. And so they got mad at me because it didn't look like what they normally got. And so it's I, amazing how, how nuts people get all these details, you know, so. They're like, I'm not paying for extra, you're going to put it on. So I, I look, look over at my manager, she was just like, just give it to him. Uh, wow. People yeah. were crazy last night. Like, there was a lot of complaints for, like, things that didn't make sense. Like, I remember I read out this whole order to somebody because they were a little confusing at the speaker. So I read it out to them. They agreed to it. And then I got all their food on. They're like, you, you didn't give me this they didn't order and I didn't read back to them and it was just like a lot of like I felt like a full moon was out because these people like there's a lot to complain about yeah and that's you know unfortunately that's just anytime you deal with the public it doesn't it doesn't matter you're just going to have the spectrum of individuals that you're dealing with you know some that are very appreciative some that are going to give you a hard time you know so um, productivity increase sorry researchers study worker efficiency under different levels of light Productivity increased regardless of light condition. So it doesn't matter what level of light, as long as they knew they were being observed, productivity went up. Researchers decided it was a human or psychological factor at play. And so if you know you're being observed, you're going to act differently. Uh, little did Elon, I'm sorry, Elton Mayo and his researchers team from Harvard University know that their work would forever change managers' beliefs about employee motivation. Their research at the Hawthorne plant of Western Electric in Cicero, Illinois, pictured here, gave birth to the concept of human-based motivation by showing that employees behaved differently simply because they were involved in planning and executing the experiments. Um, and so, like, when your manager walks in the door, you have a different level of engagement than you do when the manager walks out the door, right? So when the manager walks in and the manager's on deck, you know, it's like when military, when the general walks in, everybody pops up, you know, like, here we go, you know. And when, they, when the general walks out, everybody's like, oh, okay, here we go. We can chill now. So that's the exact same thing that's happening. Like, everybody snaps to attention 
when they know they're being observed and they're performing a little bit more, you know, doing that whole act a little bit better, you know. Um, and so when you hear Hawthorne studies, know that uh, there's this, this thing with observation that changes human behavior. So Maslow's heart, well, any questions on the Hawthorne effect? Um, there's actually, there's so many different cool psychological things to talk about. Um, one of them is um, not Hawthorne, but Harlow. And it was this, this idea of uh, connection. I'm not going to get into it right now because I don't want to confuse you, but um, it involved a fake monkey and this baby's tendency toward the fake monkey. And they, it was like they had a soft monkey and a, and a steel monkey. And then they would take this thing the baby was attached to, those baby monkey, and moved it to the steel one, and it would still draw to that, that steel. And it just talked about attachment, really interesting. And then there's... Um, Oh, gosh, obedience to authority. Oh, God, the name has slipped my mind right now, but it'll come back to me. So there's a lot of different cool motivation and psychology stuff. All right, so we're going to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Has anybody taken Psychology 150 yet? Intro to Psych? Um, when you get a chance to take that, it's really interesting. We talk, they talk more deeply about this, but Maslow is probably the most well-known motivation theory. Um, of course, you got Sigmund Freud. He had some something to say about it, but Maslow really left his mark on, on motivation theory. So Maslow's hierarchy needs basically said that the theory of motivation based on unmet human needs from basic psychological, I'm sorry, physiological needs to safety, social and esteem needs to self-actualization needs. And I'll show you a chart in a minute that, that kind of breaks that down. Believe motivation arises from needs. So, and, and I'll break that down a little bit more too. Needs that have already been met do not motivate. If a need is filled, another higher level need emerges. So we start off in the morning at this physiological need level. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? I go to the bathroom when the first thing I wake up in the morning. Yeah? So that is a physiological need. After that, what's the next thing we do in the morning? Does anybody take a drink of water or drink something? Yeah. That's a physiological need. Your body's saying, I'm thirsty. Does anybody eat something early in the morning, right? Does anybody take a bath early in the morning? Kind of, maybe. These are all physiological needs, you know. I mean, take keeping your body clean, drinking, eating, going to the restroom. All that deals with physiological needs. Getting ready to go, you get your clothes on so you won't be cold, physiological. Then, after that need is met, your next level is safety needs. Am I good? Am I safe? Um, if your safety is threatened at any point, all these other needs go to the back burner and that you want to make sure you get to a safe place again. So like whatever, whatever's going on, if there's an emergency or something, that's when the red flag goes up and it tells you fight or flight kicks in and I need to make sure I'm safe. And then if your physiological needs, you don't have, you're not thirsty, you're not hungry, you don't have to go to the restroom, you're not tired because you just woke up. Um, so all that's good. You feel safe. Your social needs come next, and this is um, your need to connect with other people um, and your need to um, go out in the world and, and do things in society. And then esteem needs comes next. This is the need for achievements. You want to um, do things that you feel um, matter to you and, and lead to good outcomes. And then once all these base four are aligned, you hit these brief moments of actualization. What are the are there times in your life or day where you feel like everything is perfect right now? It's just like, yes, I'm good. I've, I've had a great meal. I'm not tired. I'm not thirsty. What's up? I 
I sit down in my car after a long period. Long, it's just that, like, I yes. when I leave, grab a drink. So you're, I sit in the car, I take off my hat, and yep, I'm just like, yes. I'm done. You, you, you reach these pinnacles, and they're brief. They only last for a short time. Why is that? Why are these exhalation moments brief where you just have these beautiful moments? They're brief because as the, talk, the clock ticks, you got to go to the bathroom again, or you get hungry again, or you get thirsty again, or you get tired, it's time to go to bed. Your body kicks in and says, hey, you got you forget about me? I know you're up here enjoying life, but guess what? You still got to maintain because I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, it's time to go to bed. So, And then... When, that body, when your body finally gives it up and you go to sleep, the next day you wake up, all over again. Time to get something to drink. Time to go to the bathroom. And so this is a, a perpetual cycle that happens over days. Sometimes if you're going for big actualization moments, like graduation from college, those are, those are milestones that you know, build over time. Um, but there's one term that the book didn't talk about. It's called propinquity. And propinquity is you regress... To the lowest level needs. So let's say that you fulfilled these needs, those, you get up here and you're starting to do this, but then you get hungry again, you regress all the way back down here. So it goes all, all the way. And propinquity is where you, you also transition between the levels. So you've met that level, you're going back up, and then uh, as that hunger or thirst or whatever safety need kicks in, you regress all the way back down. Um, any questions or comments on Maslow's hierarchy of needs? And there's um, a lot of other psychological theories that play into this. Freud started this. He said that needs come from desire. I desire something. I want or need something. And that, lead, that led to Maslow developing this. And then there's actually called um, existence, growth, and relatedness, which was another theory that came about. So I'm trying to remember the guy that did it. Um, Altford's ERG theory. And um, that is very close to this. And the book doesn't even talk about it. So, but um, Hertzberg is another good one. <clears throat> so Hertzberg had these things called hygiene factors. I think it doesn't mention it. Yeah, right here. We'll talk about it in a second. But Hertzberg said, he asked, what creates enthusiasm for workers and makes them work to full potential? Hertzberg found job content factors were most important to workers. Workers like to feel they contribute to the company. So job environment factors maintain satisfaction but did not motivate employees. Let me read that again and see what you guys think that means. Job environment factors maintain satisfaction, but did not motivate employees. What do you think that means? Job environment factors maintain satisfaction, but did not motivate. So what this is, these are called hygiene factors. So as an example, right now the air is pretty cool in here. It's probably 70 degrees, 71. But if it was 80 degrees in here, you know, the, the being 70 degrees does not motivate you guys to learn, right? It's, just, it's an environmental factor. It maintains your satisfaction, but it doesn't motivate you. But if it was 80 degrees in here, you guys would be totally demotivated. You'd be like, look, it's t I can't stand it. I got I to gotta get out of here. I can't stand it. And we've had days it was hot in here, and I felt like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. And so with these hygiene factors, they can actually talk about job factors that can cause dissatisfaction if missing, but do not necessarily motivate employees if increased. When you hear that word hygiene, you think dirty, right? If somebody's not clean. But when in, in regards to Hertzberg, he's talking about these environmental factors that can lead to dissatisfaction. One example comes to mind, my wife worked at Bath & Body for years, um, and there was like a year, year and a half period where the toilet did not work in her place of employment. Yeah, that literally is a hygiene factor. But so... 
having a working toilet does not motivate her to do more work, right? But not having a working toilet creates dissatisfaction <clears throat> because what her and her colleagues had to do was every time they had to use the restroom, they had to leave that place and go to Belk down the, down the block to go to their restroom. And so that was, I think, it doesn't sound that annoying, but if you do it once or twice a day every shift, yeah, that's a little annoying, right? Um, and so that led to a hygiene factor and it led to dissatisfaction. Um, and really, I, I think the company could have gotten in trouble for that because that's one of those things that you got to have in place. But things like no Wi-Fi, right? If, if you're at work and you're an office job and you're typing, you're doing internet stuff and the internet goes down, you, like having the internet doesn't add to your motivation to do good work, but taking away the internet, oh my God, kill, you know, like kill me now, what are we doing? How can we live if we don't have the internet, you know? So like those types of factors or having a copier machine that is making copies but never worked correctly. It always jacks up the copies or something. That's an hygiene factor. So motivators are job factors that cause employees to be productive and they give them satisfaction. So something that causes a motivation, but those hygiene factors don't necessarily motivate but can cause dissatisfaction. Questions on that? So let's talk about some of these motivators and some of these hygiene factors, hygiene factors, a little more detail. So these factors can be used to motivate workers. The work itself, I'm interested in doing this work, so the work is motivating. Achievement, I, I, can, I, can, I can achieve something doing this. Recognition, responsibility, growth and advancement, that motivates people. Hygiene factors, these are factors that can cause dissatisfaction, but changing them will have little motivation effect. Company policy and administration. Supervision, working conditions, interpersonal relationships or relations uh, like coworkers, salary status and job security. Yeah. So like if if I say I'm going to pay, you know, you $50,000 a year to do a job, you think great, you might be a little motivated. But then if I say I got to cut payroll 10% across the board and you take a $5,000 pay cut, the level that 50000 motivated you versus what that pay cut demotivates you is huge. That, that morale cut hit that you take really demoralizes you. In fact, when you first hear that, your first thoughts will be, do I want to stay here? You're already looking for the door. You're thinking, man, this is just not a good, I don't like it. Um, this interpersonal relations is huge. Like, if I have a, co a coworker that's just there and there's nothing special, I mean, they don't, they don't really add or take away. They're just a, a non-playable character at work, basically. Uh, but then if I, but if that person is negative or ugly or toxic, that really is a hygiene factor that can be detrimental. People start looking for the doors. Like, look, there's 10 good people that work here, but that 11th one, I really can't stand. So I got to get away from this person. You know, it's toxic. Don't want to be a part of it. So, all right. So questions about hygiene factors and motivation and dissatisfaction, comments? Yes, sir. Kind of stands off to the side, like when we're not busy, we're just talking. And I want to try to include him, but he's kind right. of standoffish. Sure. And it's like it's harder to work with him because yeah. I don't know if I like if he wants me to talk to him, so it's hard to like teach him and help him because I don't know if he wants it. Yeah. And it's, just so gotta I, start. I just, I just started staying away from him, even though that's like against what I do. Yeah. Ask questions. Um, like you gotta ask questions. Like uh, and it does like me asking you what your favorite color is. You know, I now know it's purple. You know, and. Like, questions like that, I like to learn more about people. I mean, it's just, uh, I like to connect with people, but 
um, people like to talk about themselves. That's that's a that's a. There's a great book called How to How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. Great book. I gave my copy to my boss, um, friend of mine, brought it up, and I said I've got a copy. I'll give it to you. You guys should get that book, Win Friends, Influence People, How to Win Friends, Influence People, Dale Carnegie. But it talks about a lot of the core stuff you need to know to be successful in your career. And relationship building is one of those. Networking is one of those. And the way you build relationships is ask questions. You know, what are you doing tonight? Nothing. Nothing? Uh, you see anything good on Netflix recently? I don't really watch Did you watch Dahmer? No. Do you know anybody that watched Dahmer? Everybody. Everybody watched Dahmer? Yeah. I, my, I, I hate my kids talking about it. You know, like, my oldest daughter watched it, and she's, she brings up Dahmer all the time now. Like, I'll be eating a chicken leg Dahmer. You know, I'm like, why? Why do you do that? You know, like, I mean, you know, like, I don't need, I don't need that in my life, right? And so I'm talking about this right now, but we're having a, an experience. I'm, I'm saying some cringy dad joke stuff, and you're building rapport with people. You're getting that conversation going, and you do that enough, you start to build trust and say, oh, I know this person now, you know, or guess what my stupid manager said today, you know, that, I mean, you know, you get, you get these, these, these things going, you know, so like, uh, like when you go home and vent about your, your customers, you want that person to go home and vent about you, you know, maybe in a good way, you know, say, hey, this guy works, ask me all these questions, I don't know what he's thinking, you know, so, but like, what do you do when you're not here? That's a good question to ask somebody. Have you seen anything good on, on streaming lately? What are you doing this weekend? What do you do when you're not at work? You know, that's just getting to know people, you know? And so I say go for that, see what, see what happens. But some people are really introverted too, and that's okay, you know? So, I mean, they may eventually tell you to just, hey, take a hike, you know? But um, at least you tried. You know, you, you, no matter how much you try to connect with people, some people just ain't having it, you know? And that's okay, you know? So. I kind of become known as like, the, I'm like the personal one. I'm the one who always likes to deal with the customers. I like right. to talk to people. If you make other people feel good about themselves, that's a winning that's a winning magic trick. Like you know? it, it just makes the shift a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. What it would have been if nobody really talked. Everybody like is looking for somebody to encourage them and you never know you might be the only person, the only person in that person's life that cares enough to ask, you know? I mean, and somebody told me one time that when students come to this campus, this may be the best part of their day because when they go back home, it's a nightmare, you know? And so when you're here, we got to give you the VIP treatment, you know? We want you to have a good experience. Uh, because I mean, because you don't know what people go through when they're not in front of you, you know? So you should treat everybody with love and respect, you know, and, and want them to have a good experience with you. And if all you can do is uh, treat somebody well, then do that, you know. I love the quote, you can't help everybody, but everybody can help somebody. So, and just by being kind to somebody is, is a huge generosity thing that you do, so. Um, all right, so this is just stacking Maslow and Hertzberg side by side. So once more, we got the physiological, safety, social esteem, and self-actualization. And then we have these hygiene factors and motivation. Remember, hygiene don't, doesn't necessarily motivate, but if you take it away, it will demotivate or demoralize somebody. And then those motivational factors, the work, the achievement, growth, advancement, recognition, and status. So two side-by-side, side, but a little bit different. And so um, simple ways to reinvigorate work knife, take on new challenges to help eliminate boredom, Read, redecorate your space and get away from the same old, same old. Don't complain, 
Think of things to celebrate. Help others advance in their careers. Absolutely. This is this last one I just want to talk about briefly, then we'll take a time out and I'll pass out your essays. But as a manager, you should never be afraid to lose somebody that's good. In fact, you should tell everybody, I, if I can help you move up, that's great. That person I mentioned that I'm hiring, I talked to them on the phone this week and I said, look, if I can help you advance and you come here and work a couple of years and you leave, I got no problem with that. You know, I'm here to try to help you if I can. And by you telling somebody, I believe in you, I want you to do well, I want you to be successful, and if I can help you and they believe that you're there to try to help, man, will they show up for you. They'll show up every day and say, I'm going to give it all I got because this person cares and wants to help me get somewhere. So be that person that believes in other people, and then people will believe in you. It comes back around. All right, I'm going to take a time out and pass out your essays. So let me pause this.